Well, good morning. My name is Steve Heimler, in case you... You got me. Um, I'm one of the preachers here, and uh, it's really good to see you guys. I, um, I've got a 10-year-old, and he's going into fifth grade. Man, I, I am deeply excited for him to join that community of folks coming up. Um, so thank you guys for putting that together, and thank you for leading us uh, in worship today. And thank you for moving the sloth head. Um, I... <laughs> Didn't want his judgmental eyes on me the whole time. <laughs> well, there's, okay. Um, <laughs> forgot about that guy. Look at, he does look judgmental, doesn't he? He's, he's going to evaluate. All right, today, uh, we are going to be continuing in the Gospel of Mark. So, if you have a Bible and would like to read along with me, turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, and we're going to begin in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. So we've been going through the gospel of Mark for, I don't know, a long time now. And what we've been saying is that one of Jesus' primary concerns in this gospel is to redefine for us what is meant by the good life. Everybody wants to live in a situation, in a culture, in an environment in which there is ultimate human flourishing and Jesus comes along and tells us exactly what that means. Now, he's taught us that the good life is always, in his terms, contrary to what we would naturally think of it. He's taught us about authority, he's taught us about politics, he's taught us about what it means to inhabit the scriptures, he's taught us all sorts of things, but today he is going to give us the central animating principle of life in the kingdom of God, and that is love. So in this teaching today, Jesus brings us back to the center of what it means to live in the kingdom of God. In order to do that, in order to see exactly what he means and how he goes about teaching it and what it means for us, we're going to look at it under three headings. Number one, what does Jesus say? Number two, what does Jesus mean? And then number three, what does this mean for us? What does he say? What does he mean? And then what does it mean for us? And we have a lot, so let's jump into it. Number one, what does Jesus say? Now, if you were listening, you heard that the occasion for this particular teaching is a question from a scribe. And the question is simple. Which commandment is the most important of all? Now, this is a timeless question. 
Every human being, whether they asked it in the context of first century Judaism, like this guy does, or whether or not uh, we are in 21st century America, we're all asking this particular question. What is the most important? What goal or what principle is worth organizing my life against? Which ring rules them all? But in this context, first century Judaism, let's see what's behind the question for this particular person, this scribe. Now, according to scribal reckoning, there are 613 discrete commandments bound up in the Torah, which is to say the first five books of the Bible. And let that sink in for a minute. That, I mean, 613. They were God's covenant people, and as such, they had the law given to them as a gift, and this outlined for them how they were to live in light of God's covenant. And this was no small matter to them to keep the law, because when Israel broke the laws of God, that that was what brought upon them plagues and agricultural failures and a large-scale exile from their homeland. And so this scribe and all the people that he represented had a big stake in keeping the law. But if you think about it, 613 commandments. To keep straight, not only to organize in your mind, but also to obey I mean, what if somebody told you that to keep your marriage healthy, there were 613 things you needed to do every day? I mean, not all the commandments were daily things, but regardless, let's just say 400 of them are, 300, half of them. You might as well get used to an unhealthy marriage because that's impossible. You can't do it. And so it was a common debate among the scribal folks, among the Pharisees and the religious, other religious authorities, to try to figure out which Which of these commandments is the most important? Which of the commandments is the one to which all the others bow? Which commandment is the magnet that you could run through all the shavings and they would line up according to its force? Which commandment, if you kept it, would simultaneously be a keeping of the other commandments? And Jesus, his answer is extremely clear. He says, beginning in verse 29, the most important is... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, just so you know, he's not making this up. He's actually quoting the Old Testament, the first five books of the Bible. The first, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He's pulling that out of Deuteronomy. And love your neighbor as yourself, he's pulling that out of the book of Leviticus. So which is the greatest commandment? Which do all the other ones bow before? Love the Lord your God with all your being. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, in order to even approach understanding what he means by this, we have to do some preliminary work on the word love. What we in our culture mean by the word love and what Jesus in his culture and what the Torah meant by the word love are miles apart, not the same thing. Our word for love has largely, at least in my opinion, lost its explosive power. I love my wife. I love my children. I love nachos. (laughs) One of those does not fit. And yet... 
we use the same word for all three. Now, in our culture, the, the concept of love is further complicated by biological factors. Let me try to tell you what I mean. Um, my children and I and my wife are now into a series of movies, little tween movies called Descendants. Um, do we, anybody know, feel me? You know what I'm talking, nobody's? Okay, good, just us. All right, um, the, the premise isn't that important if you've never seen it. Um, it's basically uh, about a group of teenagers uh, who are, among other things, trying to figure out romantic relationships, and it's, it's very mild as far as that goes. Um, and there's one scene in particular that, as we're watching this for the first time, sent me over the edge. Uh, the protagonist is a 16-year-old girl, and she's, um, she's f starting to fall for this 16-year-old boy. Uh, despite a lot of complicating factors. And he's all in, but she's hesitating. And in, in this scene that I'm about to describe to you, they're standing, facing each other, and the boy says with great pathos, Mal, I love you, but do you love me? And it's a moment for them in the, the movie, for the characters, of like deep existential anguish on both of their parts. As we're watching this from the back of the living room, dad, to my children's consternation, shouts at the TV, you're 16. <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Love is a choice. It's not a feeling. And they're like, shh. And every time we watch that movie, I remind my children of the same thing. Because truthfully, that's how we define love in this culture. It's something like a thrill of the nerves. That's our understanding of love. The heart beats fast, pupils contract, and everything feels right in the world when we are in love. But love, in the biblical sense, is nothing like a thrill of the nerves. Love, in the biblical sense, is nothing like a rush of chemicals to your brain when you see a pretty girl. Remember, Jesus is quoting the Hebrew scriptures here when he says, love the Lord your God, love your neighbors yourself. He's quoting Deuteronomy and Leviticus. So the word for love in both of these passages in Hebrew is ahava. And we translate that word love but you know what it literally means? It literally means to give. Now just biblically, to love means to give. Now just let that settle in your craw for a minute. Isn't that magnificent? A thrill of the nerves, don't get me wrong, a thrill of the nerves, wonderful experience, chemicals rushing to the brain, love it, it's great, but it is not love. It's chemicals. So when an unmarried person is debating with their friend, you know, should I ask my girlfriend to marry me or whatever, and his friend says, well, do you love her? That's entirely the wrong question. What the, friend ask, what the friend is asking is essentially this. Do you have chemicals for her? <laughs> the answer may be yes. The answer may be no. But it's not the right question. It has nothing to do with whether you should marry that person or not. If biblical love means to give, then the question, do you love her, ought to be replaced with a much better question, 
will you love her? That's the biblical understanding of love. Love is an act of the will, not an affair of the nervous system. And that's why, just as a side note, that's why I think people who come from cultures that still have arranged marriages actually, stay with me, actually have an advantage over uh, our particular culture here in America uh, when it comes to marriage because because when you're going to get married and the first time you ever see this person is like the week of your marriage or the day of your marriage, the question, do you love her? Do you have chemicals? Probably not. The, the question that they know that they must go into their marriage with is, will you love her? Will you love him? It is an affair of the will. Okay. I probably spent too much time there, but it seems to me that if we don't understand the word love, then especially as Jesus meant it, that we're going to miss out on the, this particular important teaching that he has for us. So when Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, he is not saying that the Christian life is a thrill among the nerves, some kind of like uh, unending, ecstatic experience. That's not what he's saying. He means give yourself to the Lord your God. Give yourself to your neighbor. That's what he means. Okay, preliminary work, done. Let's move on to try to figure out what, what are the parameters of this love. We understand what he means when he says love. Now, now what are the parameters? He says... All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Now, we tend to focus on those four categories. You know, like, what does it mean to love God with all your mind? What does it mean to love God with your strength? Like, that's probably a fine meditation as far as it goes. But that's not what he's emphasizing. According to the fourfold repetition, he's emphasizing the word all. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. He wants totality, like unmixed devotion. And this is rooted, by the way, this is not just coming from the words all. This is rooted in how he begins the passage in that great confession of God's nature. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The commandment to love God with all our being is rooted in this Jewish confession that there is only one God. Now, unfortunately, we tend to think that doctrinal matters are just things for our thinky-thinky parts to mull over, but the Bible has no concept of doctrine that is not fundamentally livable. So, let's talk about this for a second. How do we live out the doctrine of monotheism? In order to answer this question, it's helpful to understand the cultural context into which Jesus is teaching. So in the ancient Near East, uh, many of the cultures surrounding Israel during that time were polytheistic, which is to say they worshipped many gods. And so if you decided to go on a journey, then before you left your house, you would have to make sacrifices and offerings to your household gods. And then as you passed through the fields, you would have to make sacrifices and offering to the gods of the fields. And in order to have safe passage on the sea, you would have to make sacrifices and offerings to the gods of the sea so that you would not perish there. So in a very real way, 
in that culture, in a polytheistic culture, the average person's loyalty was divided among many gods, depending on which territory you found yourself in. But the Jews came along and said, there is only one God, and he rules over all. He is the God who made the fields. He is the God who made the seas, and therefore he rules over them. There is not one square inch of all creation over which God does not cry out, this is mine. Therefore, Jesus teaches us, let your devotion be singular. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Do not divide your love between the Lord and the gods of the hills, which are no gods at all. All of your life falls under his dominion, and therefore our whole lives are answerable to him. Okay. You, you with me? You, you, are we following? This? Okay, good. We've seen what Jesus means by love, means to give. We've seen the parameters of that love all our whole lives now let's look at where we are to direct that devotion two places to the lord and to our neighbor now i've already touched on briefly just a second ago what it looks like to devote ourselves to give ourselves to the lord now what does it look like to love our neighbor as ourselves now we know from jesus's other teachings that our neighbor is basically anyone who exists. Um, in the King James, they would, um, King James Version, they would translate this in, in, into English as the nigh one. Whoever's around you, your family, your coworkers, your, uh, the people at those checking you out at the grocery store, like anybody that you happen to be in front of at the moment, that is your neighbor. And so, we've already seen that to love means to give, so what does it mean to love our neighbors as ourselves? It's actually not that complicated. We're all scholars of the highest degree when it comes to giving to ourselves. Yes? <laughs> yes. Um, we are well-schooled in making provision for number one. And it seems to me, that some people would say that's a, a weakness, that's terrible, we can't, I, th I actually think it's a good thing. I think Jesus schools us in how to give to ourselves so that we will have the muscle memory to then turn those skills to our neighbor. We know how to do it. We just have to, we just have to reorient the target. So the teaching is to give to your neighbor with the same joy the same speed, the same abundance that we give to ourselves. Well, let's take that one step further. I remember reading a sermon from Jonathan Edwards years and years ago, and now I've forgotten which one it was, um, in which he takes this commandment to love your neighbor as yourself very literally. The most natural reading of that word, as, Love your neighbor as yourself. The most natural reading of that is something like, in the same way. That's how I just described it. To, to love your neighbor in the same way or the same manner that you love yourself. But Edwards takes that 
as, more like at the same time. Now stay with me. I, I, I'm, I'm taxing you. I can feel it, but just stay with me. He takes that word as and takes it as um, at the same time. Love your neighbor at the same time that you love yourself. And what he means is this. Make your neighbor's happiness an essential ingredient in your own happiness. So that means there is no separation between loving myself and loving my neighbor. And understanding it this way, if I am not giving myself in service of my neighbor's happiness, then I myself am not happy. Therefore, to love my wife as myself means that I devote myself to her happiness because I've made her happiness a real ingredient in my own happiness. See, we tend to think that um, to give ourselves to another, to devote ourselves to another's happiness necessarily means a reduction in my own happiness. The, the resources are getting depleted. But if we are made in the image of God and remade in the image of Christ, then what could make us happier than to pull the happiness of others into our pantheon of self-concern because this is what Jesus does. It's the way of Jesus. And unless he is a liar, then that kind of self-giving love to neighbor will actually increase our happiness, not diminish it. Okay, let me try to summarize everything I just said. To love God with all the heart, with all the mind, with all the soul, with all the strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is the commandment that every other commandment bows to. This is our magnetic north. And that's what Jesus says. Now, let's shift to the second point, which is shorter, and look at briefly what Jesus means by this commandment. And you may be thinking, didn't you just tell us what it means? Well, yes and no. If we drill one layer deeper, we're going to find something quite astounding. Notice the question that is asked. Which is the most important commandment? And I don't know about you, but if you're anything, anything like me, you would expect Jesus to answer something like, oh, every commandment is of the same importance. Don't you know they come from the Lord? Don't you know they are inscribed in holy writ? How can you say one is more important than the rest? But that's not what he says. He says there is a commandment more important than the rest, and here it is. And he tells them. So Jesus, now listen to this. Jesus is teaching here that there is a hierarchy, hierarchical importance to the biblical commandments. I, I wonder if I'm making somebody squirm here. Just stay with me for a second. Not all scriptural commands are endowed with the same importance. Now, we see this, let me try to prove this to you, we see this all throughout Jesus' life. Um, if you'll remember when someone comes to be healed on the Sabbath, the Pharisees grumble that Jesus is violating the Sabbath by healing this man, by doing work on the Sabbath, but Jesus rebukes them by saying that the work of freeing people from their bondage is more important than the law of the Sabbath. On another occasion, Jesus and his disciples, we looked at this a few weeks ago, are walking through a field, they're 
on the Sabbath, and they're grabbing some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, and munching them for a snack. The Pharisees again jump on him. You're violating the Sabbath. You can't harvest. They're counting that as harvesting. You can't harvest on the Sabbath. And Jesus comes back with this astonishing story. Do you remember what it is? He says, do um, you remember David who, when he, was on, when he was fleeing from Saul, he was running through the night, he was exhausted, and he finds himself at the house of Abiathar, the high priest. And he says, Abiathar, do you have anything to eat? And Abiathar says, well, the only thing we have to eat is the showbread. You don't need to know what all that means except to say that the showbread, the only people who could legally eat it, according to the scriptures, was the high priest. David, not a high priest. But David eats it. He violates the law. And Jesus shows that the scriptures do not condemn him for such law-breaking. In fact, he goes on to say in that same teaching, he mentions that the priests work on the Sabbath but remain guiltless for doing so. He goes so far as to say the priests desecrate the Sabbath, and yet they are innocent. Why? Because temple laws are subservient to Sabbath law. Excuse me, the other way around. Sabbath laws are subservient to temple laws. The temple laws are more important than the Sabbath laws. Jesus teaches this again in the Gospel of John when he's in the middle of another disputation, this time about the Sabbath and circumcision. The law explicitly says, if you've read it, that a boy must be circumcised on the eighth day. But supposing the eighth day occurs on a Sabbath, what do you do? You circumcise him or not? Which law do you break? Jesus says, you circumcise him. You get that rabbi in on the Sabbath and you make him work. Why? Because there is a hierarchy of laws. When push comes to shove, there are some laws that trump others. And this is really important for us to know because our perennial temptation is to believe that all commandments of Scripture are of equal importance. And Jesus is saying here that they are not. I remember being in college uh, at the University of Georgia and the, um, at the student center. I don't some of you who have been there more recently might know if this is still there. But at the student center, outside in the courtyard, there was a brick platform. And um, it was known as... I, free speech platform, and every once in a while, a group of Christians would show up there, mount the platform, and begin preaching to all the passers-by, and usually at a very busy time, like lunch or dinner or something like that. And usually, the greatest substance of their preaching would consist in shouting and sweating with red faces at the young women who were walking by, who were dressed, in their opinion, immodestly. And these preachers would take on the role of, like, the Old Testament prophet and would begin screaming names at these women that I won't mention and won't repeat publicly. They were awful. You see, to, to these people, every commandment had the same importance. The doctrine of the Trinity was on the same level as women let your beauty not consist in the outward form. But Jesus says to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than the command for modesty. And I reckon if that's true, then the content of their preaching would have been much different. And this is really important for us to understand today. The doctrine of Christ's deity, for example, is not on the same level as how you dress on a Sunday morning. 
The age of the earth is not as important as the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The command to love the Lord your God is more important than your political affiliation. There's a clear hierarchy in the importance of God's laws. Now, let me hasten to add, don't stop listening. If you've listened to all that, then don't stop right this minute. Let me hasten to add, it might be tempting to think that what I'm saying is that God's law is meaningless. Therefore, let's just slide right into relativism, relativism, do whatever we want to do. We'll be the ones who decide which ones are important, which ones are not important. That's not what I'm saying. Jesus says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Therefore, our whole allegiance belongs to him. He is the master, we are not. And therefore, there's no getting around the fact that Jesus is here giving us a sliding scale of value placed on all laws that if push comes to shove, there are some that rise to the top and some that rise to the bottom. And the commandment sitting on top of the heap is to love God and to love our neighbor. Now, let's move on to the third section. What does this mean for us? You've seen what Jesus said. You've seen what he means. What does it mean for us? Let's try to bring all this teaching home. In order to do that, let's see how this man that Jesus is speaking with, let's see how he responds to Jesus. Verse 32. And the scribe said to Jesus, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now it's that phrase that deeply intrigues me. You are not far from the kingdom of God. By implication, he's not there yet. He's close, but he's, he's, he's not there. Why? What is the defect that Jesus finds in his answer? Because, I mean, after all, didn't, didn't this man just repeat what Jesus said? The answer is no, if you look carefully. Jesus was personal. Love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then notice how this man removes all the personal elements with his answer. Oh, to love him with all the heart, and with all the mind, and with all the soul, and to love one's neighbor as one's self, he removes the personal element. Now, let's not pass over the fact that Jesus does commend this man for having the right doctrinal answers. That's no small thing. 
but he also tells him that the right doctrinal answers are not enough to gain you entrance into the kingdom of heaven. There's a difference between knowing doctrine and having that doctrine come home to you. There's that old illustration from, John, from Jonathan Edwards um, about the difference between knowing that honey is sweet because you can, you can tell by the chemical compounds that when it interacts with the cells on your taste buds, it will produce a sweet feeling in your brain. There's a difference between knowing honey is sweet in that way and knowing that honey is sweet because you've tasted it. Now, to me, there may be no better example than this, of this than the old 18th century preacher John Wesley. Now, I've told parts of this, his story before up here, but I want to emphasize something different this time. Um, if you don't know who John Wesley is, he was born and raised an Anglican, and because of his mother, Susanna, knew his doctrine inside and out. And from very early on, he knew that he would devote his life to the Anglican priesthood. And so when he came of age, he went to no less than Oxford University to learn the doctrines of God and learn the ways of priesthood. And he was serious about his life. Make no mistake, he was serious. In fact, while he was at Oxford, he, uh, he formed a little group of folks called the Holy Club. Members, luminous members included himself, Charles Wesley, the great hymn writer, and his brother, and uh, George Whitfield. And they held each other to the highest standards of biblical morality. And upon his graduation, he took a post as a missionary to Georgia all the way across the sea. And if anyone knew what it meant to follow Jesus Christ, it was John Wesley. But as he crossed the sea, a great storm arose, and, it, and it, he felt as though he was going to die. That's how bad it was. The, the boat rocked and pitched, and waves came over the side. And he found that in that moment, he was terrified to die. He realized in that moment that all this great learning that he had, all this doctrine about God and his providence and his son and atonement and forgiveness, none of that made any difference. He was terrified to die. And he realized that he had to do something about it. He knew his doctrine, but it had not come home to him yet. And this led to a long depression on his part. I mean, hadn't he devoted his entire life to follow Jesus Christ? And here he was on a ship, according to his own reckoning, no better than a pagan. Well, he spent a few years in Georgia, and after a failed ministry here, uh, he sailed back across the sea to England, still dejected. If a person of his great knowledge could not be saved, then who could? And one night, he decided to go to a meeting, a church meeting, down the street from where he lived. And here's what he wrote in his journal that night. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where there was one reading, where one was reading Martin Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, 
I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Did you hear that? Even mine. All the doctrines that he had spent his life learning finally came home, and Jesus that night brought him in to the everlasting kingdom of God. And I wonder, if there's anybody listening to me right now who can identify with that young Wesley, or more to the point, to the man asking the question in the scripture that we've been considering, you know all the right doctrines, but they haven't come home to you yet. You believe there is one God. You believe that Jesus Christ was his son and that he died for the forgiveness of sins. You believe that to love the Lord with all one's heart and to love one's neighbor as oneself is the sum and the king of all doctrine. Well, I commend you, as Jesus would, You are not far from the kingdom of God. That is good news. But you're not yet there. Do you know that he died for your sins? Even yours. Now, if not, how do you get there? Some people think that when Jesus was giving us this particular teaching, when he says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, that he's giving us the formula for entry into the kingdom. And that cannot be. Spend 10 minutes trying to devote your whole self without any mixture of impurity to the Lord your God. Spend 10 minutes trying to Love your neighbor with the same speed and joy and abundance as you love yourself, and you will find it is impossible. Jesus doesn't, I mean, some people will say, we'll look at the Bible and say, it's just about loving God and loving your neighbor. As if that was a relaxation (laughs) of the law. That's not what Jesus is doing. He's cranking up the heat. Love the Lord with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, and love your neighbor in the very same way and at the very same time that you love yourself. It is an impossibility. But there is one who did that. Jesus Christ wasn't just giving us bare doctrine when he taught us this. He was describing the content of his life. Jesus is the one who with no mixture of impurity loved the Lord his God with all his heart, with all his mind, with all his soul, and with all his strength. At his baptism, the father pronounced, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And it was Jesus who loved his own neighbor as himself. It was Jesus who made our happiness a real ingredient in his own happiness. There is no greater love than this, than that someone give up his life for his friends. Jesus Christ was so concerned about your eternal happiness that he gave his life away. 
His death was a sacrifice of atonement. In his shed blood, your sins are forgiven. Not sins, not one's sins, your sins are forgiven. And if you feel your heart strangely warmed at the pronouncement of this good news, then believe it to be true. And that would mean I have the good pleasure of welcoming you this moment into the kingdom of God. Amen. Now, we come to this table as we do each and every week. This is a table that Christ has spread for us, and it is a table of his everlasting love. It's not a table that exists to thrill our nerves, although we'll take it if he chooses to give it. But that's not what it's for. It's actually quite ordinary. It's a table at which Jesus Christ seeks to love us, which is to say, give to us. As we believe in his death and resurrection for our sins, and as we ingest the bread and the cup, he gives to us faith. He gives to us hope. He gives to us his love. And so for all who have believed in his saving death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins, even yours, my sins, even mine, this table is for you. And you are most welcome. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, who are we that you should bow so low to teach us these things? We don't deserve it. And yet because of your endless mercy, your everlasting kindness, and your love, you, you reach down. You whisper to us, this is the way. Walk in it. And this is a gift beyond all our reckoning. And we thank you for it. And now, as we are seated at this table with our Lord, we pray that you would grant us faith, grant us grace, and grant us a real sense of your presence. Pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Please come.